Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. He gave me this tie this week. <laughs> you should have put your name on it, though, because I pray for people in the order that I receive gifts. So <laughs> keep that in mind for next year. Christmas is a time of giving. That also means that Christmas is a time for shopping. Ever since the wise men showed up from the east, people have been exchanging Christmas gifts. But it seems like every year we get kind of confused about what Christmas is all about. I read about a play in London, and during that play, three six-year-old boys acted out the role of the wise men. As they presented their gifts, each boy stepped forward and stated what they were offering to Christ. The first held out his arms and said, gold. The second boy knelt down and said, myrrh. The last boy, obviously nervous and struggling with his line, stepped forward and declared, Frankie sent this. <laughs> and speaking of confusion, a lot of people are like the little boy who insisted who instead of saying the three magi were bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh, he got a little mixed up and instead said they were three maggots bringing frankincense, gold, and smurfs. But this is the time of year when we think back to when the three wise men went to see Jesus. And according to the book of Matthew, they presented to him those three gifts. These are simple words, but if we analyze them carefully, we discover an important yet often overlooked theological fact. There is no mention of wrapping paper. You have no idea what comfort this brought to my heart as wrapping gifts has never came easily to me. If there had been wrapping paper, I think Matthew would have said so. One man imagined our Bibles would contain these verses. And lo, the gifts were surrounded about with seven square cubits of paper. And the paper was covered within and without with pictures of Frosty, a man of snow. And Joseph purposed into his heart to cast the paper into the barrel of refuse, but Mary saith unto him, Cease, man, drop the decorative parchment. It should be set aside for future generations. Surely the ribbon ordained with festive colors can be used again next year. And Joseph did stroll his eyeballs, and it came to pass that the babe was more interested in the paper and playing with the boxes far more than the frankincense. I don't know. For some reason, I just can never completely wrap presents correctly. And it's not that I don't try. I can take a gift the size of a deck of cards and put it in the center of a section of wrapping paper the size of a regulation basketball court. But when I'm done wrapping, folding, and taping, you can still see a section of the gift peeking out. Now, sometimes I camouflage this with scotch tape and another piece of wrapping paper that looks completely out of place. If I get real frustrated, I've even been known to put the gift at the end of the wrapping paper and roll it up like a little gift burrito and then wrap scotch tape all around it. If you don't believe me, just come to our house on Christmas Eve and look under the tree, and you'll immediately be able to tell which gifts Pastor Bill has wrapped. They're the ones that look like enormous spitballs. <laughs> Case in point, when I told Connie last Friday I was going to wrap her presents, she said I could just put her gifts in decorative bags this year if I wanted. That's how bad it is. All that really had little to do with the sermon. That's just free therapy for me. What I'd like to speak on this Christmas is found in 2 Corinthians 9.15. 
It's both plain in its simplicity and yet profound in its scope. It's the kind of water that children can play in and yet elephants can drown. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And to that cardinal truth of Christianity, the Apostle Paul can only say, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, in the context, the gift that Paul is speaking of is the grace of God. However, we do no harm to the text because Jesus is the embodiment of God's grace. The Bible says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we can interchange those two words and still be theologically sound. Our text today comes from the writings of the Apostle Paul. He has traveled to the Greek city of Corinth on his second missionary journey sometime around AD 50. Now, Corinth was a city of about 400,000 people and was at the crossroads of Asia and Europe in Paul's time. As a result, it developed a blend of cultures and customs, religions and rituals, traditions and philosophies. It was also a world-renowned center of commerce, much like New York City. Anything you wanted, you could buy in Corinth. In addition, it was also a hotbed for every vice and sinful practice under the sun. One of its many temples was dedicated to the worship of the Greek goddess Aphrodite, and there were at least 1,000 temple prostitutes offering their sensual services to a depraved clientele. While at Corinth, Paul saw wealth and opulence on display. He saw the elegant marble temples with their columns of gold, silver, and bronze. He visited the marketplaces where people shopped until they dropped to purchase that perfect gift from the wide range of products that flowed in and out of Corinth every day. Now, these gifts would end up in the homes of the rich and famous and the cottages of the poor. So today, I can imagine the Apostle Paul wandering through the Mercer Mall, wondering if anyone truly understands the reason for the season. And so with the verse in mind that's uh, on our overhead, it occurred to me that gift-giving is essentially a three-stage process. I will give it to you with an alliteration of the letter A. So if you're taking notes, we have affection, acceptance, and appreciation. The first stage we will call affection, and that I mean that you have to care about the person that you send a gift to. But regardless of the amount of affection, the gift-giving process can be stopped at the second stage, which we will call acceptance. Because if a person staunchly refuses your gift, there's really nothing that you can do about that. But hopefully that doesn't happen, so we can enter to the third stage, which is appreciation or thankfulness. Let's look at affection first. Since all Christmas gifts trace their roots back to that first gift in that dirty stable, Let's look at the affection that God had for all of mankind. I mean, we don't normally accidentally send someone a Christmas gift. Although I did read about one woman who once in a last-minute rush of Christmas shopping bought a box of 50 identical Christmas cards. Without bothering to read the inside of the card, she hastily signed, addressed, and mailed them to everyone on her Christmas list, 49 people in all. Several days later, she happened to glance at the one card she hadn't sent. Imagine her horror when she read the pre-printed message inside. It said, this card is just to say, 
a little gift is on its way. But this is the time of the year when we are concerned about choosing just the right Christmas gifts to the, give to those special people in our lives. But let me ask you this morning, have you ever received an indescribable gift? Have you ever received a gift that is beyond all description? A while back on Good Morning America, Joan London featured some ideas that might be called indescribable. One of them was a Jaguar automobile, the Jaguar 220. If you care to order one of these, all you have to do is go to your local Jaguar dealer and put down your $80,000 deposit. Then when the automobile is delivered, you are expected to pay the remaining balance of $507,000. The Jaguar 220 is a $587,000 automobile. And they only make 250 of them a year. That's crazy, isn't it? I think our gifts should be more practical. As the one lady said to her husband, this year let's just give each other practical gifts like socks and fur coats. But, G but Paul calls Jesus indescribable because of his nature. How do you describe Jesus? What words would you choose? How do you describe a baby born in a, or a baby born of a virgin? How do you describe God in the flesh, walking upon earth and reaching out to the hurting masses of humanity? Isaiah said that he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. How do you describe that? What words would you choose? How do you describe that which is spirit when all that we have known is that which is either physical or material? How do you describe God who has all knowledge when all we have is limited knowledge? How do you describe God who is all-powerful? How do you describe the eternal? Simply put, how do you describe the indescribable? Paul says that we can't. Words are simply inadequate. Here is a gift that cannot be fully expounded. Words fail Paul to describe the gift of Christ, the gift of Christ and the grace that goes with it. Words just aren't adequate. But many of the wisest men in the world have tried to describe him. Listen to the, the Council of Chalcedon in 451 A.D., now, these were the greatest theological minds of the time, and they came together to try to describe Jesus. Here's their description, and I quote, Perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly man of a reasonable, rational soul and body. Co-substantial, co-essential with the Father according to the manhood. And all things likened us without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter times for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, according to the manhood, one of the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to the acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, and the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. Did you understand all of that? Neither did I. This is why God made Calvary chapels for people like us. But that's man's attempt to describe the indescribable. Even when we, when we bring together our greatest minds and our most extensive vocabularies, we cannot adequately describe Jesus. 
The point is, when out of his abounding love, God decided to send that first, that first Christmas gift, he cared enough to send the very best. 1 John 4, 9 says, God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we may have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And in our three-phase gift-giving process, this is God's only part. He lovingly offers the gift, that is the, but it is the individual responsibility of mankind to accept it, which leads us into our second phase, acceptance. Now, the second stage of the gift-giving process is acceptance. It goes without saying that here, the, 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 here that the gift plays a key role in the acceptance. Now, allow me to talk to the men here just for a minute. If you want your wife to accept your gift, it's important to make sure the gift doesn't make her so angry that she slugs you in your face. So pay attention, guys, since you have five days until Christmas. Here are a few ideas of what not to buy. And if you have already bought these things, take them back tomorrow. Here goes. Anything related to weight loss is a bad Christmas gift. I hope you're not surprised by this one. Gym memberships, weight loss books, and workout equipment are definite no-nos when it comes to Christmas presents. Even if your intentions are good and your wife has mentioned she wants to get healthier and lose weight, don't go there. When you buy the gift of weight loss, you're saying that she needs it. You're much safer telling her she looks fabulous and buying her a 12-pound box of chocolate. <laughs> Anything with an electrical plug is a bad Christmas gift. A brand-new top-of-the-line toaster oven may seem harmless to you, but when she opens it that Christmas morning and throws it at you, then you'll realize how dangerous toasters can become in the right hands. Now, I know what you're thinking. But she's been complaining about that food processor for months, so she's going to love this. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> Your wife may want a toaster or a blender, but she doesn't want to unwrap one. And please don't think buying a new vacuum cleaner would make her life so much easier. No, you doing all the vacuuming from now on would make her life easier. Buying her a vacuum just makes her feel like a live-in maid. Actually, that's a great idea. For Christmas, buy your wife a maid. Now, the next one has critical implications. Clothing can always be a risky Christmas gift. If you have ever bought your wife clothing as a gift, congratulations. You are either very brave or very stupid. Because when you purchase clothing for your significant other, you are taking some huge risk. First, women are very picky about their clothes. It's not just about the appearance of the sweater, it's also about the type of fabric, the style, the cut, and a whole bunch of other things that men don't understand. But the biggest risk in buying clothes for a Christmas gift is buying the wrong size. If you buy the clothes too small, you inadvertently send the message that you think she's too big. On the other hand, if you buy the clothes too big, then you're telling her that you think she's bigger than she actually looks. 
A safer option is jewelry, since jewelry is a one-size-fits-all thing. Like the lady who said, I don't mean to brag, but I can still fit into the earrings that I wore in high school. So if you'll just follow these simple rules, it will save you much grief and me much marriage counseling. But let's say that you do go into one of those really expensive stores in the mall that sell jewelry. The fact that I don't know any of the names of those stores probably says something about Connie's jewelry collection. Now imagine I found a necklace that was only $50,000 and I decided to buy it for her for Christmas. Of course, this story is all for the sake of illustration, but I figure why not be a big spender when you're pretending? So anyway, with a glazed look in my eye, I hand my credit card, my debit card, and the title to my card to the 12-year-old that's working behind the counter. I even decided to pay the 10 extra bucks to have them wrap it for reasons that we've already covered. So Christmas morning, I watched Connie open the gift with great anticipation. And to my great chagrin, she takes one look at it, screams that she hates both it and me, and then stomps out of the room turning over stuff as she leaves. Connie's not as nice as you guys think. (laughs) Believe it or not, in the privacy of our own home, she reduces me to tears on a pretty regular basis. But back to our sermon, you better believe she's not in here. (laughs) But back to our sermon. What has happened there? Although there was affection and the gift was fabulous, the second phase of gift giving has now come to a halt. Why? Because there was no acceptance. Now let's apply that to the greatest gift ever given. The big difference is the gift that God offers isn't a once in a year event. No, it's a gift that is offered 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And I have to wonder how many millions of times every single day this gift gets handed back to God unaccepted. John 1.10 tells us that he came to the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. It's very important we realize that those who God gave the right to become children of God believed and took that next step, which is the acceptance of his son. The reason why I say that is that most people believe that they have a belief in God and that that is all that they need to get to heaven. However, mere belief in God is not enough without acceptance. How do I know? James 2.19 says, You say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. Very well, even the demons believe and they tremble in terror. I don't know if you knew this, but there is no such thing as an atheistic demon. It's kind of both funny and sad that during Jesus' time on earth, the religious leaders who should have known who he was called him a madman, a drunkard, a glutton, and a friend of sinners. And yet every time he ran across a demon, they were quick to confess they knew he was the son of the Most High God. I think the truth of that is a commentary on the importance of accepting the gift that God has given us. 
So to quickly look at our outline of the gift-giving process, our first phase was affection followed by acceptance. But for the gift-giving process to be truly complete, the last thing we will look at this morning is the third phase, which is appreciation. A little boy was shopping with his mother in early November. Looking all around at the store's Christmas decorations, the boy asked, What happened to Thanksgiving? Now, of course, that little boy was speaking about the holiday of Thanksgiving, but without realizing it, he asked a great question concerning Christmas. What did happen to Thanksgiving? Many people feel like the woman who's doing her last minute Christmas shopping at the crowded mall. She was tired of fighting the crowd. She was tired of standing in lines. She was tired of fighting other people looking for that gift that had sold out. Her arms were full of bulky packages when the elevator door opened. It was full, but the occupants, occupants grudgingly tightened ranks to allow her a small space for her and her load. As the doors closed, she blurted out, whoever is responsible for this whole Christmas thing ought to be arrested, strung up, and shot. A few nodded their heads in agreement or grunted. Then from somewhere back in the elevator, a single voice said, don't worry, they've already crucified him. We need to remember who is responsible for Christmas, and in that remembrance, we need to be thankful. Can you imagine if after church today, one of you guys gave me a wrap gift, and I open it, and I look at it, and then I turn my back on you and walk away without saying one word? If someone did that to us, we would be highly offended and terribly hurt. And yet, it happens to God all of the time. One time really stands out to me in the life of Jesus. This is Luke 17:11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself and he thanked Jesus, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. So we see that all ten of these lepers were in desperate need of healing. And out of his great compassion and mercy, Jesus healed all of them. The Bible tells us that as they went out, they were healed. Now, it's easy to read over that quickly because we're not confronted with leprosy and don't really understand the horror of that disease. That disease was so terrible, they would keep their hands and feet always wrapped up. Why? Because if they didn't, rats would chew their fingers and toes off while they slept and they wouldn't even realize it until the next morning. So can you imagine their absolute euphoria when they realized their skin that had been scraped raw had suddenly been restored like that of a baby? They may have even exchanged high five with the other lepers and for the first time in a long time realized they actually had five fingers to exchange. They must have laughed, but instead of that throaty rasp that le leprosy had reduced their voices to, it came out like sweet music. They leapt in the air. They landed on graceful feet, 
and they ran home yelling for the names of their family, all except one. One man turned and ran back the way he had just come. He saw Jesus and fell to the ground in gratitude. And what did Jesus say? Where are the other nine? It would seem that like us, God also expects and appreciates gratitude when he does something. And we should be far more thankful than those lepers. Why? Because Jesus just healed them of physical leprosy, but he has healed us of leprosy of the soul. In the Bible, leprosy is an illustration of what sin will do to a human in three distinct ways. One, leprosy causes damage to sensory nerves, making the skin numb. And as we continue to sin, we become more calloused and hardened to the effect that it has on our lives. Two, people with leprosy couldn't hide their disease. Likewise, the actions of people trapped in sin eventually becomes obvious to those around them. And finally, leprosy eventually leads to death. As leprosy progresses, the lack of sensation leads to fatal tissue and damage. Likewise, sin will first kill all the good things in our lives until it finally and completely kills us. So in the hustle and bustle of this holiday season, let's not forget its soul and primary, primary importance. That God, out of his affection for us, gave us the greatest gift that will ever be given. That's his part. Our part is accepting that gift and then in humble adoration, Let's strive this year to appreciate it every waking minute of our lives because we will never receive a better gift. Why? Because Jesus is the best Christmas gift because he is what we truly need the most. In John 4.10, Jesus met a Samaritan woman who really needed to have her understanding enlightened. She believed life was dull, dark, and full of disappointment. And yet Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who is it that asked you for a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. I want you to know that no matter what your life looks like this morning, Christ stands before you with hands outstretched, offering that living water once again. He knows your pain and he is able to sympathize like the great high priest that he is. After all, he exchanged the robe of his glory and veiled himself with human flesh. He condescended to the point that he became one of us. As we finish up this morning, long ago there ruled in Persia a wise and very good king. He loved his people and he wanted to know how they truly lived. He wanted to really know about all the hardships they endured. So often he would dress himself in the clothes of a working man or a beggar, and then he would go to the homes of the poor. And then as he was there, no one that he visited with ever knew that he was the king. One time he visited a very poor man who lived in a cellar. He ate the coarse food that the man ate. He spoke cheerful and kind words to him. Then he left. Later he visited the poor man again and disclosed his identity, telling him, I am your king. The king thought surely the man would ask for some gift or favor, but he didn't. Instead, he said, you left your palace in glory to visit me in this dark and dreary place. You ate the coarse food that I ate. 
You brought gladness to my heart. To others you may have given rich gifts, but to me you have given yourself. So let's remember that no matter what kind of gifts that we receive this year, none will ever compare with the gift that has already been given, which will ensure a truly Merry Christmas. And Lord, that is a gift, as Jonathan was saying, that we can't describe. I don't even think throughout eternity we can fully describe it. For you are the God-man who became one of us. You came down and made yourself lowly that you could bring us up high with you one day. I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, and who will watch on the Internet later, that you would take these words. If they do not know you, that this would be the best Christmas of their life. And I also pray, Lord, for those of us who do know you, that we would just have just a better appreciation of thankfulness for all that you have done for us. We ask in your name. Amen.